Welcome, everyone, to the Energy Advisors podcast. I'm your host, Rex, that energy guy. Glad to have you with us today. I got a great guest that's coming on with us today, um, the executive director of the Colorado Energy Office. And, you know, there's a lot of um, things that they need to help teach us out in the marketplace for all our listeners that are based in Colorado. Now, of course, I emanate the program out of Colorado. It's listened to in 12 countries currently, but uh, we do a lot of Colorado-specific things. So before we get started on that, I would like to thank our partners in the show, our good friends over at Valor Solar. Uh, they do it right. You know, and when you go through the process of looking at any technologies for your home, there's a research uh, step, there's an education, there's an evaluation, implementation, and, and then maintaining long-term. The reason I'm partnered with the guys at Valor is because they have integrity through the entire process. They're really good at that. They served, you know, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and the wonderful state of Idaho. So thank you to uh, Valor Solar. Glad to have them with us. They're top rated in the, in the state. Okay, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Uh, we've had some time getting him scheduled. There have been stuff on his calendar, stuff on my calendar. Didn't always work out. So Will, welcome to the show. Will Tour, the Executive Director of the Colorado Energy Office. Will, glad to have you. Yeah, thank you, Rex. I'm delighted to be on the show. Fantastic. All right. So, you know, it's not all just policy and technology and stuff like that. We'd like to know about the people behind energy, and that's kind of the story. So um, you don't have to go back to early childhood, Will. However, we would like to know about your professional journey and then how you got to CEO and just a little bit about your, your background. Yeah, no, happy, happy to describe it. And I would say I'm one of those people who like, I definitely did not plan my life out. Things just sort of happened. And so, you know, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh and was a you know, science geek as a young man, you know, very interested in physics and biology and studied physics in college. And then in 1980, I was hitchhiking from Pittsburgh to California and the car I was in broke down in Boulder. It was <laughs> live 1980. There was a cheap trick concert uh, going on in the Folsom Stadium and sort of looked around and was like, this is a pretty nice place. And I've basically been in Colorado ever since. So wow. on 44 years, other than a, a stint in Chicago for five years for graduate school. Well, it's and, not, it's not as windy here than it is in Chicago. <laughs> I lived in Chicago for a while. So it sounds like you were almost an accidental tourist that got here then. An accidental tourist. Exactly. Okay. But what, you know, so my academic background was, was science, you know, study, did my PhD in physics, sort of theoretical physics, but was always really interested in kind of environment and energy. Okay. And so ended up after grad school coming back to Colorado and I worked at CU Boulder running the student environmental center there for a little over a decade. While I was doing that, I got involved in local politics and ended up becoming you know, mayor of Boulder and then Boulder County Commissioner. And uh, in all of those roles, you know, was doing a lot of work at sort of the intersection of climate and energy and transportation. Um, then moved into the nonprofit advocacy world and spent six years working really on electric vehicles and transportation electrification with the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. Okay. Working in four or five states across the Southwest. And then when... Uh, Jared Polis was elected governor of uh, Colorado in 2018 on a platform of moving to 100% renewable electricity by 2040 and bold climate action. I joined his administration as a cabinet member and director of the energy office because it was pretty clear that this was going to be a really exciting place. You know, the governor has big visions for moving to clean energy. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. A lot of technology advancements, interesting stuff in policy. It's a big moving uh, beast right now. A lot of moving parts. Yes, and I think Colorado is one of the most exciting places in the in the country. You know, there's a number of a number of states that are really trying to do big things on clean energy and climate. But I think Colorado is pretty unique. You know, we're one of the few states that's really 
engaged on these issues that isn't on the East Coast or the West Coast. Yes. And that is a state that has a pretty big, you know, historic fossil fuel industry, including a big oil and gas industry. Yep. And we're a state that's not, you know, a bright blue, all democratic state. You know, we're, well, we may be trending blue, we're a purple state. So you really have to take, I think, a, a different approach to policy here than you would in a place like Massachusetts or New York or California. Right. So it's been pretty exciting to be able to be part of how do you how do you really move forward in a way that works for a state like Colorado? Yeah, it, it is really interesting. I grew up here. I'm a, I'm a native. And so when I grew up and I don't want to date myself and I got out of high school in 1983, so that puts me in my late 50s. Um it was a completely red state. It really was. I mean, you you had your concentrations in the city and county of Denver. You had your concentrations in the in Boulder and mostly the city out in the uh, the county wasn't so much. But no, it's transitioned a lot. There's been a lot of change going here. So you're right. There is a interesting dynamic that's taking place. And you know, outside of the metropolitan areas, it's still very a red state. So you're you're exactly right in purple. Now, I want to transition, if you would, for, for us a second. A lot of our lit listeners don't really know about CEO, so the Colorado Energy Office. They don't know what your mandate is, your vision, you know, all things. Now, I'm one of the lucky few that's on your email distribution list, so I have an idea what you guys are up to, but uh, most don't. So if you could, um, could you walk us down the path of, you know, what CEO is and, and what you guys are up to? Yeah, happy to do that. So we are one of the state energy offices. So almost every state in the nation has a state energy office. Most of them were actually started back in the late 70s after mm -hmm. the you know, oil embargo and sort of the energy crisis of the late 70s actually uh, founded with oil overcharge money. At that time, the oil industry made kind of windfall profits during the oil embargo. And there was litigation over that. And as part of the settlement, that that settlement agreement actually um, funded the creation of energy offices around the around the nation. But the Colorado Energy Office has grown a lot over the years. The, the legislature has given us a mission that is really focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and supporting affordable energy for Coloradans. Um, in order to support a high quality of of life and a, a strong economy in our state. Uh, we've got about, right now, about 80 people who work at the energy office. We are sort of housed under the, the office of the governor, so work very closely with the governor's office policy team. And we both have a, a policy role and an implementation role. On the implementation side, we run the state weatherization assistance program that helps mm -hmm. provide energy efficiency and renewable energy upgrades for low-income residents. We have a very large transportation electrification program. Mm -hmm. So well, almost all of the sort of major investments in electric vehicle charging across the state sort of come through, through our office, as well as running things like the state e-bike rebate program and tax credit program, and some of the low-income um, incentives for electric vehicle adoption. We have another building buildings team that uh, is responsible for setting the sort of minimum energy code requirements for local governments across the state, as well as pr providing funding for things like public building electrification or neighborhood scale adoption of heat pumps. Yep. Uh, that team also runs our cannabis energy efficiency program. So we have a program to help the cannabis industry, which is actually pretty energy intensive, that indoor very. It's um, not AI, but it is very uh, intensive. Yes. Um, we also have a large industrial uh, program where we administer sort of grant funding and competitive tax credits to help industrial manufacturing operations move uh, towards um, more energy efficiency and lower greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, also a geothermal grant program where we have grant funding to support 
geothermal electricity generation as well as like geothermal thermal energy networks to help do things like take a campus or a group of commercial buildings or a new residential development and instead of putting in you know furnaces or boilers instead having a, essentially a geothermal heat pump network right so we we have that set of programs right. and uh, then we've got a pretty big policy team that uh, works on legislation and works on some of the various regulatory agencies through our Public Utilities Commission and our yeah. State Air Quality Commission and our Energy and Carbon Management Commission on the regulatory side. But the governor really kind of tasked the Energy Office with being the central coordinating a body for state agencies for developing our sort of all of government approach to climate action and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's kind of the sort of the central organizing principle for a lot of our policy work. Okay. So out of the 80 or so people that are on your team, how many are in policy and then how many are in these executable programs? So I think there are I believe we've got eight folks or nine folks on our policy team okay. and the rest are in implementation. Implementation. Very sorts. Well, that's really exciting because when I talk to, uh, I'm doing a lot around um, community initiatives, education initiatives, and a lot of the folks that are in offices of sustainability, they're not as great yet at execution type programs. They're really good at policy and they're good at some vision things, but ask them how they're going to go do those things. And it's, well, there's not as much meat on the bone that could be there. Yeah, so. no, I think we've been very, you know, very lucky to have both a governor and a legislature who are pretty committed on these, on these issues. So over the last several years, they've really increased the level of funding and resources for actually delivering programs. Right. We're also sort of at, at a point where due to the passage of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, you know, the largest climate investment in history, there a lot of that funding, you know, we think is going to start flowing through, uh, among other entities, state energy offices. So we are you know, anticipating about $140 million of funding that we'll be able to use for uh, rebates focused largely on low energy Coloradans for energy efficiency and electrification. Um, we are in a competitive grant application process right now for um, where we've applied for $250 million for the solar for all program to support both rooftop and community solar for low income residents. Right. So a lot of, a lot of federal support that's out there that well should be coming down the pike in the, the next year or two. Well, we'll have another conversation at some time. I've been engaged in portable solar a lot lately, um, stuff that's plugged inside your house, inside the grid, and that's going to put solar in the hands of a lot more people because the renters, uh, short-term property owners, so, hey, I'm getting ready to retire. I don't really want to do those things. People with uh, <clears throat> multiple uh, locations and may want to bring it home instead of having it be stolen from their cabin. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on in this space as far as that. So how about we um, start to explore your roadmap and what your plan is and what, what's been happening? I, You know, $140 million, it's earmarked. I think there's probably some interesting things you can do. Yeah, so the so the state greenhouse gas roadmap really came after the legislature in 2019 adopted economy-wide targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, really aligned with sort of where where science says we need to head globally. So the, there's a target of cutting our greenhouse gas emissions in half compared to 2005 levels by the end of this decade, by 2030. Okay, and we now have a a target of net zero by 2050. And so what the governor asked us to do with the GHG roadmap was to pull together all the relevant agencies. So like our Department of Public Health and Environment and Transportation and Natural Resources, but also to, to work with stakeholders and members of the public and academic experts and really coming up with a strategic plan for, okay, now we have these goals. How are we actually going to achieve them? And that was a 
a really interesting process. We ended up adopting our first roadmap in 2021. Okay. We targeted sort of five major areas that are responsible for most of the greenhouse gas pollution in the state. You know, it's electricity generation, it's transportation, it's methane leaks from the oil and gas industry, it's industrial emissions, and it's burning natural gas in buildings. You know, those five things uh, account for a large part of our GHG emissions. And those are really the areas that we that we targeted. I would say electricity is one of the most sort of exciting areas where there's just been incredible progress. So the the legislature ended up adopting clean energy standard requirements for electric utilities that basically required every uh, large utility in the state to file a clean energy plan that would achieve at least an 80% reduction in pollution by 2030. And what we've seen is that in practice, all of the large utilities have filed plans that collectively substantially exceed that target. We're looking at probably at least an 85% reduction in um, pollution from electricity by the end of the decade. And our largest utility, Excel Energy, now with their adopted uh, plan by 2028, they'll be hitting close to 80% renewable energy on the grid. Wow. And just remarkable progress that, you know, a decade ago would have been hard to imagine, but what we're seeing is that the availability of low cost wind, solar, and batteries is allowing utilities to retire their uh, expensive coal generation units and replace them with wind, solar, and batteries. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's just a remarkably fast transformation that's taking place on, on the electric grid. That then really opens up the ability to make some real progress in other areas. So in transportation, you know, the the fact that we're moving towards such clean electricity means that there's just huge benefits to switching from gasoline and diesel vehicles to electric vehicles. And Colorado has made some some real progress there. Um, Also, we're now in the top five states in the country for EV market share. And what we're seeing right now is that close to one in five of every new vehicle sold is an electric vehicle. Yeah. And at the start of the um, administration, I think it was a little bit under 3%. So just huge increases that we're seeing on the the EV side. And there's a, a lot of programs in Colorado to support that. This is a great place for people to buy an, an electric vehicle. Yeah. I was looking at stats at the end of the year and it was cresting out that it was about 19 and a half percent of the new vehicles are EVs. So there's some exciting things going on there. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really is very exciting. We've got some great financial incentives. So we, right now we've got a $5,000 tax credit for a new EV. And if you get one that is, um, under $35,000 MSRP, so something like Chevy Bolt, right? Uh, you can actually get an extra $2,500, so $7,500 in state tax credits, in addition to whatever the federal you get at the federal level. Wow, that's yeah. that's a great incentive. Yeah, yeah, no, it's pretty significant. And for folks who are low-income Coloradans who have an old, highly polluting car, we have the Vehicle Exchange Colorado program, okay. which is sort of like a cash for clunkers for EVs. So basically, if you turn in and if you're low income and you turn in a highly polluting vehicle, you can get an extra $6,000 um, towards uh, buying an electric vehicle that you can add on top of those tax credits. Wow. So uh, designed to you know make sure that evs are affordable for everybody Mm -hmm. and then there's just a ton of investment that's happening in ev charging to make sure that people will have the charging that's out there so you know that you can go where you need to go with an ev and we've got you know basically grants from the the state some of which are supported by federal funding from the Infrastructure Act to help the private sector get 
uh, charging out there. So lots and lots of fast charging investment happening along kind of all of our major highway corridors, 70, 25, 76, Highway 50, Highway 40, you know, just a, a real philosophy there, wanting to make sure we've got enough charging out there that you really can go anywhere you want to go in Colorado and feel confident in having a battery electric vehicle. That's great. So um, I'm going to switch gears for just a second. I, there's one topic that came across my mind for just a minute. You know, we saw the Colorado legislature um, jump out there and uh, create the solar ready um, for wiring and, and being ready. How has that program uh, worked here in Colorado? Has that been a success, what you were looking for? So it's kind of brand new. So yeah, yeah. The, the legislature in 2022 um created a, re a requirement that there would be a minimum state energy code and local governments when they update their building codes, they'll have to make sure that they're meeting at least that minimum code. And one element of that was a new solar ready and electric ready. So it requires sort of pre-wiring for solar as well as pre-wiring for electric heat pumps and electric vehicles. And those standards just got adopted, you know, this last summer yeah. and it's just going to affect uh, really over the last few months that it's a requirement that as local governments update their codes, they have to include that. Include it. So, you know, I, I think the energy code board that set those standards did a great job at listening to a lot of different people and figuring out how to set kind of ambitious, but achievable, um, language into the code. So I think it's going to go really well, but, but we're just at the very beginning. Very beginning. Well, I know I, I, I read a lot about that. I do a lot of research being the nut that I am that does this podcast. And I was just wanting to get your um, opinion on that because, you know, the next big step for that would be like California where they have mandated, uh, you know, solar on all the new buildings, whether it's residential or uh, commercial. So um it, it's an interesting policy there you know hopping back i sorry i'm all over the place here a little bit um i think a lot of people don't understand that their current um utility bills have an investment that's being made by each home that's helping us build out that ev network um i actually i looked at this and like wait a minute what is this now i haven't had an electricity bill in over 30 yeah. months since i went solar <laughs> But I still look at that bill all the time. Yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about that. What's happening on the public sector as far as we're funding the network? Because I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the places that funding is coming to really build out EV charging is from electric utilities. Mm -hmm. And there was legislation back in 2019 that required our electric utilities to develop transportation electrification plans that would support widespread adoption of electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so they are required to, to invest in EV charging, largely in supporting customers in, in installing EV charging. And it was an interesting debate at the time that this was adopted you know, over, well, is this benefiting all utility ratepayers are only the ones who have electric vehicles, but it turns out that it really does benefit everybody. And there's there's some really good evidence out there now on this. Because most EV charging, especially residential EV charging happens at night, like you come home from work, you plug in your car and it's charging, you know, until the next morning. Your most of that charging is happening at off-peak periods where there's right. lots of extra capacity on the grid. So you're basically taking extra generation and transmission and distribution capacity that wasn't being used, and you're using it. So you're spreading the its fixed costs over more kilowatt hours. Yes. So we had a study a number of years ago that found that every electric vehicle that gets added to the grid in Colorado over its lifetime will save other ratepayers about $650 in downward pressure on electric rates. Right, and so right. the, and I thought that the legislation that that was adopted was really clever because it built in sort of price caps on how much a utility can um, 
can spend on transportation electrification that is related to the amount of revenue that they're getting from EV charging. So, so it's basically designed to uh, assure that there is a net benefit to customers because they can spend up to the amount of that extra revenue that they're getting that's benefiting all other rate payers. Well, it's really interesting um, and from storage and EVs because it, um, with the technologies of bidirectional charging, now you got to be careful when you say that because there's five different types of bidirectional charging. Um, however, if you have the vehicles like the Ford F-150 Lightning, you can really put that, you know, charge that and you basically have a drivable battery because uh, just from an example's perspective, a Tesla wall uh, will have about 13 kilowatts worth of power, which may want, may get you through a day or two. But the larger battery on that F-150 has 131 kilowatts of time. So you could you might be able to run your house off that for a week to 10 days, depending. But I think that's an area that's going to get interesting. Tesla has committed to having all their vehicles bi-directional uh, charging by 26. GM's made an announcement. They were a little more vague about uh, bi-directional. I mean, gee, imagine that. But, it, you know, Kia, uh, Hyundai, there's they're all everybody's heading that direction. And so I think that's going to have a big impact because now, if you have the proper bi-directional um, you know, charging system, you get a two for one. You get an EV out of it, and you also get a, a storage uh, system for your, your home. Because right now, our utility companies are kind of our extended uh, power supply if we're pushing uh, electricity back on the grid. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that aspect of it, because the technology is advancing so fast. But I pay a lot of attention to a kind of the combination of a vehicle and a big battery uh, for my house. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. And, you know, we are, as you look out a few years in the future, mm -hmm. you know, as we start to move to a grid that's, you know, 80% wind and solar, you know, the ability to store electricity becomes more and more important. Mm -hmm. And clearly some of that will be through large utility scale battery storage. Yeah. But the question of can you actually, you know, make something work where you're able to use distributed storage through, you know, some some way, for instance, of managing those EV batteries at scale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, no, nobody really knows quite what those business models look like, but there's a lot of, I think, innovation happening as people try and figure out, you know, can can you actually use distributed storage yes. through millions of customers, you know, largely through their electric vehicles in a way that could really serve the grid and sort of cut down on costs for everybody by not having to install a bunch of extra storage storage, you know, paid for by ratepayers. I think it's a very interesting question. Yeah, well, when you look at it, I mean, we're coming full circle when it comes to electricity and power generation. You know, 100 years or more, everybody had a distributed source of power. They burned either coal or wood or whatever, kerosene, and there was a distributed. Well, then we had Tesla come along and fix the A, invent uh, AC, then it went centralized. But right now, with the things that are happening with the technologies, we can get back to a little more of a distributed model because a guy like me, I'm I'm in suburban, you know, I'm in Broomfield for heaven's sakes in a in suburban area. I'm not out in the stick somewhere. And when my truck gets here, I'm essentially off the grid, you know, from an electricity perspective. Now I'm still attached to it, but if the grid went down for a week, I really don't care because my solar could charge my truck during the day. My truck could power my house at night. And and if I need to go somewhere, the average person only drives about 35 miles a day. So, yeah, it's not a bad strategy. So I think it's going to be interesting. And there's a um, and I want to skip over and talk about this for a minute. I think there's going to be some serious impact on the business models. And I'd like to get your ideas. So I went solar just about three years ago and I haven't had an electricity bill. And in fact, our good friends at Excel Energy, because when I went in, uh, they write me a check every month. Now, it's not a big check. I mean, it's not like I'm out buying, you know, brand new sneakers or something every month with it. But that business model is going to be hard to sustain. 
because you know here in Colorado we're like six and a half percent adoption rate on solar people are seeing those benefits but what happens to the business model when we get to 20 percent 30 percent 50 percent uh it's a little unsustainable model if the utility companies how they're currently constituted they're straddled with the costs of maintaining grid okay and building out that infrastructure but if you have 50% of your customers no longer writing you a check, that's a that's an interesting conundrum that we're gonna face. In fact, I have a I'm not to be promoting, but I have a book coming out about that called Gridlock, because I see an intersection coming out because the average, you know, individual, if they get the information, they can kind of go independent. They could be like me, either getting a check or getting credits. So this skips into some conversation I want to talk to you about. We're blessed in Colorado, thanks to our good friend, Eric Blank at the PUC, um, to have a very uh, green uh, energy focused uh, leader of the PUC. How do you guys deal with and what's your relationship like with the PUC, knowing that in one hand, we've got to build this infrastructure and, they, and the, the utility companies need to uh, pay for that infrastructure. But on the other hand, we can't be um, ignoring the situation with the consumers because like out in California, I and mean, this is a long way to get to a, a question, yeah. out in California in 2022, the Public Utility Commission's pretty much wiped out um, net metering. They have the net metering 3.0. It wiped out the financial um, justification for uh, most people to go solar. And in fact, in 2023, it, it somewhat decimated the marketplace. Well, there are critics that say the California Public Utilities Commission sold out to the utility companies. You know, they have hundreds of millions of dollars or millions of dollars worth of um, of uh, lobbying that they can do with the PUC. Um, what's your relationship like with the PUC here in Colorado? So I'd say we, I think, have a, a good relationship with the PUC. I think Right now, we've got a, a great Public Utilities Commission, really all three members. One of them actually used to have my job, Tom Plant, who was the okay. Energy Office Director back during uh, the Bill Ritter administration. Um, and so I'd say we've got a great working relationship, but but we it is also a relationship that can't be too close because we are actually interveners at the Public Utilities Commission. Okay. So, you know, we can't be in there, for instance, discussing policy issues with them that will be active uh, issues in a contested docket before them, just right. like a utility couldn't have those conversations. You know, we need to be careful also. Yeah. So I would say great working relationship, but we are formal, formal interveners. I think the issues around net metering are really interesting ones. And, you know, I, I can't speak to the, the details of California. And, you know, California is a very different and very sort of unique energy market, among very. other things. Yeah. You know, electricity is very expensive there compared very to here. expensive, yes. you know, You're looking more like 40 cents a kilowatt hour sometimes as opposed to our like 12-ish yeah, we're around 12-ish, 13-ish, <laughs> and, and there are um, some utility companies like Southern California, uh, down in San Diego and the LA Basin, that it can be as high as 70 cents a kilowatt. Yeah, which is just Crazy. remarkable to think about. But, you know, as, but I think that you're right, that when, when you think about net metering, you know, the net metering structures were pretty much all created at a time when Solar electricity was, if not brand new, there was very little of it out there on the grid. Utilities weren't really investing in renewables. And it's really how the solar got jump-started was mm -hmm. by making making it possible for people to do rooftop solar through net metering. Yeah. It does start to look, you know, you, you have to start thinking about what does the economics look like as we move in sort of two big changes one is as you get more and more people having rooftop solar or or community solar and as you start thinking about the the fundamental sort of grid itself at the utility scale moving towards very high levels of renewables mm -hmm. so 
you know, if you, you know, thinking here, let's say it's 2028, 2029, and we're somewhere around 80% renewable on the Excel grid. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're going to start having some of the same dynamics that you have in a place like California, where the, where there's so much solar that during kind of the three to six in the afternoon period, you're probably actually having to curtail significant amounts of solar. Yeah. Then, then load is going to, you know, continue growing into the evening, sort of six to nine p.m. And the solar turns off, and what are you going to do at that point? So some of the issues that they've had to deal with, and you, it really does, I think, start raising questions about what's the appropriate way to to structure um, compensation to solar owners to make sure that they're getting a fair deal, but mm-hmm. also to make sure that you you've got the revenue that you need to make the whole grid work. Right. And it's kind of came to a head actually in part of Colorado last year where Holy Cross Energy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a rural utility in the sort of Aspen, Pitkin County area. Yes. yes. Very, very climate forward. They have the most aggressive goals in the state of getting to hundred percent carbon free by mm-hmm. 2030. And they, they came out with a proposal that basically said we we see so much renewables you know coming on our grid that we want to change net metering. The solar industry looked at it and said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What you're doing, you know, we think is going to be really bad for being able to do rooftop solar." And they were sort of headed towards a big what I a big fight over it. Yeah, we actually stepped in and said, Let, "Is would everybody be willing to take a step back and have a conversation?" around kind of what is the problem and what are ways to fix it that might be able to work, you know, maybe not be perfect for everyone, but be workable for right. for everybody in this. So actually over, over the next year, uh, we will be uh, having a set of conversations among stakeholders that's really trying to explore you know, that set of issues and see if we can get to a place in Colorado that is a a more perhaps consensus-based and cooperative ag- agreement on how this might need to change yeah. over time as opposed to sort of the big battles they've had in California. Oh, it's so I'm terrible. I'm my fingers hoping we can get there. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I've done so much research on that. And the fact is you can't have organizations that are in the black and then all of a sudden dump all this electricity in, and now they're still required to maintain the infrastructure. So I think there's going to have to be some massaging of how companies are constituted, how people are um, compensated. Because, you know, in California, when that medium 3.0, it cut the amount that the utility companies were paying for electricity to the resident by 75%. Mm-hmm. So now your economics of going solar went just went out the window for a lot of people. Then they're forcing people because, again, wide distribution of um, bidirectional vehicles isn't there yet because, you know, of the nine models that are available, there's only two that are fully bidirectional. Well, a Tesla wall that, you know, can power your house for a day, it's like $20,000 or more. So it, you know, I, I look at at any renewable um solutions it has to make economic sense and that that's one of the issues that we're going to run into more and more you know there are that used to be 38 there's now 37 states with net metering uh various versions of it going across the country and i just see this collision course it's going to happen and there's going to be a lot of shouting and gnashing of teeth and trying to figure out because you can't expect the utility companies to just 100% bear the the brunt of this, but you can't also prevent the individual from generating their power and wanting to sell it back so they can afford it. You know, because there aren't, I mean, the tax credits are amazing, right? There's, where else could you, you know, get the government to, you know, state level, federal level to basically buy a third of your, you know, pay you a third for your vehicle. There isn't any other technology that I know that's happening on that. So it's, I just think it's an interesting intersection that we're going to have to face, and it's going to happen faster because if you're familiar with the technology adoption lifecycle, 
we're just coming into coming out of early adopters and coming into early majority and you know things are just getting started you know with with saturation or adoption rates at seven percent yeah this it's going to get really interesting so anyway i'm sorry i get on a soapbox about that because i think there's a collision course here and i think it's going to take a while to sort it out so Yeah, and, no, there's a, there's a complicated set of issues there to try to work through over the next few years. Yeah, it's and it's not it's not as cut and dry as people think. And it's, you know, understanding the grid. I mean, when you talk about balancing authorities and the utilities and, you know, the for profits and the uh, municipality, you know, providers of power, it's it's not like there's just one grid out there and it's all the same. There's a lot of different components. OK, all right. We'll get off that topic well, now. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, thinking a little bit about some of the other things that we see coming, you know, in 2024, you know, one of the one of the big ones that we're looking at is really updating our clean energy planning. You know, I okay. described that we right now have that requirement of utilities to show that they're going to reach 80% clean energy by 2030. Uh, we are now looking at updating that to 2040 to really align with the governor's goal of 100% clean by 2040 mm-hmm. and require utilities to um, file plans that get all the way to to you know basically 100% reduction in carbon emissions by 2040 although having a little bit of flexibility to to go a little bit under that if needed for affordability and reliability we, we actually had a super interesting study that was conducted this year. We hired a company, a Colorado-based company called Ascend Analytics, who do a lot of work for utilities around the country, sort of modeling out you know, their power systems. And we asked them to take a look at 2040, look at projected electric demand, assuming that we meet our goals and have a lot of electric vehicles out there and a lot of heat pumps out there. So. Yep pretty substantial growth in the amount of electricity consumed. And then asked them, what's the the lowest cost mix of new generation that could meet that load? And what when they looked at that, what they found was that we could get to around 95% reduction in pollution. So simply by minimizing costs. Essentially, what they found was because we have such a good wind resource and solar resource here, mm-hmm. and just you know the costs are so low now for the that you could um, deploy a lot of wind, a lot of solar, and a more moderate amount of batteries, and get uh, to uh, again about ninety five percent reduction in greenhouse gas pollution by by 2040 and you under that model you basically keep the existing fleet of natural gas generation plants but you hardly ever use them so yeah. they're essentially there to assure that you can keep the lights on 24/7 and that if there's a week in the winter where it's cloudy and it's calm and there's high electric demand you you can still meet that load right uh, but the modeling suggested that you actually only use those units two or three percent of the time, and so it showed a really affordable pathway to very deep pollution reduction. And so that really, I think, has given us the confidence that we can, you know, move forward with a, a very strong twenty forty clean energy standard. Awesome. So, what's next on the horizon? And then let's talk to two uh, horizons here. What's immediate for CEO? What are you guys working on just immediate? And then what do you see a little further out? I mean, being a tech guy, I never ask anybody to look past about three to five years because it just, we have no idea, you know, like the things that are happening with AI and stuff. So what's immediate? That's a a big priority for you. If you could pick one, I know you got a million of them going. Yeah. Well, Uh, one one that I would would pick is really, it's also about renewable energy and it's really about renewable energy siting. And we are... When we look out to those 2040 goals, what we see is we're going to need to build a lot more wind and a lot more solar, Mm -hmm. like probably five times as much solar as exists in the state today and three times as much wind. Mm -hmm. Some of that will be on rooftops, but a lot of it will also need to be 
big utility scale projects. And we need to make sure that we've got a statewide permitting uh, approach that actually, you know, is protective and make sure you're not building it like in the middle of a critical wildlife corridor, but that's also fast and predictable and effective and actually allows the stuff to get built. Right. So kind of renewal, it's sort of like the national discussion on permitting reform. We think that we really need at the state level to have permitting reform to, to make sure that we've got a way to build the renewables that we'll need in order to sustain our economy and move towards our climate goals. So that's a that's a really big priority uh, that you know likely requires state legislation to move it forward mm-hmm. and we're working with a lot of stakeholders trying to you know come to agreement on what that could look like. Okay. And then what do you think a little bit further out? I mean I know you write the plans and you guys put the vision together. What yeah. do you think's a little further out? Maybe 3 years from now, 5 years from now. So, you know, I think that there, there are some emerging technologies that are going to potentially be really important. And it's a it's a little hard to know for sure which ones are going to play out and actually, you know, be able to pencil out at scale. But, uh, you know, three that I would note that I think we're, we see a lot of potential for in Colorado. One is advanced geothermal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, geothermal is super attractive because zero carbon energy that is fully dispatchable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, historically, geothermal didn't play a big role in Colorado because with the older, older technologies, there's only a handful of places that have the right geology where you could do right, it. Right, right. But there are these new enhanced and advanced geothermal technologies that work over a much broader array of underlying geology that potentially could open up a lot of ability for geothermal in Colorado. So we're doing a lot of work to sort of set the stage for that and are are pretty excited about the role that it could play a few years out. Uh, Clean hydrogen is another one Mm -hmm. where... We think that there's potentially a pretty significant role for really using largely curtailed wind and solar. So as we build a lot of wind and solar, there will increasingly be periods of the day where we're producing excess and you sort of have to turn them off. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a real potential that you could uh, bring in hydrogen electrolyzers, run those electrolyzers off of the curtailed wind and solar so that you're truly getting, you know, zero carbon um, emissions in making that hydrogen. And that could then really uh, displace a lot of use of fossil fuels in our industrial manufacturing operations and things like potentially heavy duty trucking. Yeah. And, you know, Colorado State University actually just got a grant from the federal government um, about two weeks ago, it was announced to start Uh, installing some of the the first hydrogen fueling stations in the state on I-25. And so I think we're starting to see some some action that can, you know, begin to prepare for the potential of a future hydrogen economy. And then the third thing that I would say is I think that carbon capture and storage are going to play a pretty important role. Again, not, not so much on the power generation side, but if you think about things like we've got three large cement plants in Colorado. Cement is actually very carbon intensive. Yes. But there, there's the potential to um, add carbon capture to those those cement plants and dramatically reduce their, their carbon footprint. So a lot of activity happening in the state right now to start creating a regulatory structure that could allow the essentially people to propose uh, carbon capture projects and take advantage of some of the federal funding that's out there right now to support those projects. Wow. That's some exciting stuff. I I've been doing a lot of research on uh, the hydrogen, clean hydrogen, and it's, it's really fascinating um, what can, what could be done there. So I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been great. I'm um, in fact, I could probably sit and talk to you for hours about all this stuff. Uh, cause, but that's because I'm crazy. Cause I, you know, that's what I focus on and stuff. Um, 
we're definitely going to have you back on as you, you know, on a regular basis, because it's important. Uh, even though, you know, it's easy to catch you because right here in my backyard, but it, you know, energy offices across the country are doing the same types of things. And like you said there, so want to thank you for your time today. And I always have one out question for my interview people. Okay. <laughs> Now, we have this concept in the world where they talk about a bucket list. I want to jump off of an airplane. I want to, you know, climb Mount Everest and that kind of stuff. But there's an opposite list, okay, an opposite list of a bucket list. Well, this one is rhymes, and it starts with an F, and I'm not going to say that word, okay? <laughs> it's a list, so I have nothing I want to do with, okay? So for me, I don't want to hang out with, a, like, a collection of spiders or something like that, okay? <laughs> so the people of, of Colorado get to know Will just a tiny sliver. What might be on Will's effort list? I mean, something you just have no interest in doing. I never again want to fall down a mountainside. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a story in itself. We'll have to get you back on. Well, again, thank you for your time today. You've been very, very generous with it. You've been very educational in helping people out. Uh, what's the best pe way for people to get on your folks' email list? So I, I think if you go to the Colorado Energy Office website, you can sign right up for our email list. Fantastic. Cause I, I encourage people to do that. Uh, it's uh it's great. Cause I've been following the e-bike stuff going on there, all your initiatives, things. It's uh it's a good way to stay informed. Well, uh, appreciate you coming on today, Will. Like I said, we're going to want to get you back on as, as frequent as you might have some time for love the conversation. So anyway, uh, listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in today. Don't forget to bookmark this on the podcast platforms. Don't forget to hit subscribe on the video platforms. And until next day, we bring you some more energy sparks. Thanks and make it a great day.